Okay, well, in uh, looking to present a conversation about the biblical husband, uh, my hope is not that... uh, my hope is not that your wife gets an opportunity to bury her elbow into your side tonight. That's not my hope. <laughs> Though I envision that might happen. But uh, it's really to help us to, to gain a vision of what God wants from us as men. What he expects, even what he commands. And that we are given uh, the power through the Holy Spirit to deliver on what God expects. That's what he gave us the Spirit for. To deliver on what he expects. I just want to pull you into the life of a man who I was reading about this week. His name was Charles Colcock Jones. He was born on December 20th of 1804. Chuck Jones, Charles Jones, he ultimately became a pastor, but his father and mother died before he was five years old. And he was raised in a home by his uncle, Uncle Captain Joseph Jones. Captain Joseph Jones raised him. The Jones family, uh, both his dad, his dad who passed away, and his brother, Captain Joseph Jones were plantation owners. So Charles was raised in prosperity. He was raised as a plantation owner's son. In fact, that was his inheritance, was a plantation. Charles inherited a large estate, and his future was wide open. He was excellent and uh, got uh, an opportunity to attend West Point as a military uh, career. He could be a merchant, or he could just continue owning the plantation. He could go into any one of these three fields. Um, But uh, the Lord took his health from him at age 17. In an epidemic that sweeped uh, through Savannah, Georgia at that time and brought havoc uh, to a lot of people's lives, even killing many, uh, Joseph survived, or not Joseph, but Charles survived the health scare, but he was awakened spiritually through that experience, and he was converted. And so at a, at a young age, he starts to, to know Christ. Uh, by 21 years of age, at 1825, Charles determined that the course of action for him was to pursue seminary. And you start to see this plantation-owning son whose parents had passed away, raised by his uncle, he starts to demonstrate leadership, and he starts to demonstrate service. Uh, He's he's starting to look like someone that you could follow or trust. Uh, It was uh, to the north that he went for an education. This southerner, he goes to the north. He goes to Massachusetts for a seminary. And I don't know if you think about 1825 too often, but the northerners didn't like the southerners too much at that point in time. And so here's a southerner up with the northerners, and Charles ran into a conflict, conflict of his conscience, as he started to think about slaves and owning slaves back on the plantation at his home. And his conscience was leading him to uh, many discussions on the topic. In fact, he became one who was asked to speak to many audiences about the topic of slavery and what are we going to do, those of us who are convicted as Christians about the opportunity to free and emancipate a people who are in slavery. What does the Bible have to say about this and how should we respond? Ultimately, he even had the chance to speak in the presence of President Andrew Jackson. Um, This helped to decide his, his own future. He took action. He initiated a move. Uh, The move was conviction-based, principle-based. And this is, this is the path that he went down. Uh, it ultimately led to his next biggest decision as well, which was a decision on who to marry, who to marry. And he wanted to marry a young gal named Mary, Mary Jones. He had a strong relationship with, with her. The problem was her father. He happened to be Charles' guardian, the captain, Captain Joseph Jones. Charles had been enjoying a sweet relationship with his cousin, Mary Jones, letter writing back and forth while he was at school. She was about four years younger than he was. And he needed to next approach the captain about the opportunity to marry Mary and even ask the captain for permission. And finally, 
ultimately, the, the captain said yes when Charles again found himself doing the hard thing, doing what wasn't easy, being a leader for a relationship that he knew was right. And so he let out and he asked for permission. They were married ultimately the day after his birthday, December 21st, 1830. And their road to ministry was well underway by this point. Charles was principled. He took initiative. He loved Mary. He learned who Mary was and what her likings and convictions were, that she was a devout Christian, thrilled with Christ as her Savior. And then he chose to lead Mary. So effective at leadership with Charles that the Lord put him into kingdom work, ultimately calling him into ministry. And he would ultimately go around his plantation and other plantations in his area, and he was the personal preacher to all of these slaves on all these plantations to reach the African-American community, the black community in the South in the early 19th century. That's Charles Jones. He was a lover of Mary and Christ. He was a learner, and he was a leader. That's our outline for tonight. Three qualities of a biblical husband. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5.25 to kick off this conversation. And you know well, you know very well why we're going to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is going to give us the great uh, context that we need to understand. Because there's a profound analogy that Paul uses in talking about biblical manhood, biblical husbandry. To be a husband. It's the, the most profound analogy is found here in Ephesians chapter 5. And this analogy you know well. Well, Paul is speaking about marriage, the roles of husbands and women, this characterization, this picture, this description. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And the thought of it is a mystery. And it's true. And it's profound. And it's glorious. And if you're married to a spouse, you have this mystery right in front of you, right in the opportunity that you have to love your spouse. Let's read the text together from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following. It says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The union of a man and woman is the imagery, is the picture of Christ and the church. How profound is that? What a a glorious opportunity to uphold Christ and his purposes in your union with your spouse, your union with your wife. And the first command that goes out to the husband in this passage, in this scripture, is to love your wife. Husbands, love your wife. So quality number one of a biblical husband is that you are a lover of your wife. 
As a lover of your wife, we need to talk about love. There's lots of definitions about that flying around. We need to define love. We need to explore the principles of love and the practice of love. And we'll do all those in just a moment. But first, I want you to consider this. Paul here is talking to the Ephesians, and he says, You, husbands, love your wives. Does this commandment require supernatural intervention or not? Okay, here's another one. Can you squeeze fresh water out of an orange? Can you squeeze blood out of a turnip? No, you can't do either. Here's the point. The command requires the supernatural. The command to love your wife requires the supernatural. Does the natural man have the ability to love his wife? Maybe on his terms and by his own definition and standard, But would she call what he's offering love? Maybe on her terms, by her qualifications. But do you think that when this man or you are asked by God, when you stand before him, did you love your wife, that you're going to be able to produce a yes answer that's going to win favor with God if you loved her on your own standards and not God's standards? You're, You're not going to get an approval rating from God. Love must only ever be defined by God on his terms and be perfectly aligned with his nature. So in defining love, before we get to a proper definition, let's consider worldly love. Let's look at worldly love. This is the love that man has access to and frequently offers to other people. This is the cheap and easy love. It's something that we often lean into and it's something that's abounding around us all the time. So a few points about worldly love. I've got six of them here. And the first one is that man offers romantic feelings and presumes that this is love. Romantic feelings. He makes a, a disgusting correlation between infatuation and lust and true love. The problem here is that romantic feelings, what do we know about them? Prom was the other night. What do we know about romantic feelings? They come and they go. They ebb and they flow. But love if it's according to God's character, is a continuous commitment. So worldly love fails this test right off the bat with the idea that they come at it with romantic feelings. The second would be that man believes that physical attraction is love. But physical features can change. I'm 40. I know that all too well. Which again affords us an understanding of, of love that ebbs and flows. Right? If you base your love off of physical attraction... You're basing it off of something that ebbs and flows. And love is not this. Love has no tie to physical form. So it can't be physical attraction. Number three, some men believe that sex is love. And this is short-sighted as well, and it's also extremely selfish. Sex is related to love, but it cannot be equated with love. It's related, but it's not equated with love. Fourth, Worldly love includes the thought that love is needing someone or being benefited by someone. And both of these views also are extremely selfish. The one says, I love what I gain from you. I love what I gain from you. And the other one says, I like what you do for me. I love what I gain from you or I like what you do, from, I like what you do for me. 
The fifth way that the world loves, the worldly love has love talkers. They have love talkers. These are men who can put up a host of glorious words, but never lift a finger to producing what their mouths tell of. And then on the converse side, you have the love actors as well. These, are, these men are embarrassed to speak love because speaking, interestingly enough, comes with conviction, vulnerability, honesty, and a demand for resolve, even accountability. So love actors, they don't really want love. They only want to serve you to get what they want. So love actors will do to get. And if you notice something about all of these, love is something that someone in, for the world, love is something that they receive. Did you catch that? The world believes love is something that is coming to them, and they get to judge love based off of how well it is received inside of them, which also, at the very outset, is highly subjective. In all of these cases, a pathetic attempt is made at love. It's made in the strength and wisdom of men, and that's just pitiful, and we don't want that for our understanding of love. This worldly love has self as its ultimate aim and as the main benefactor of each attempt. This is love to get. It is self-seeking love, and none of these love options comes close to knowing what biblical love is. So let's look at biblical love. Well, right out of the gate, biblical love is Christ-like love. Christ-like love. That's biblical love. That's the big umbrella. It must look like Christ. It's got to hold His standard. Consider 1 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the great exchange, right? This is, this is so incredibly love, loving. To take the negative that this person has offered and to pull that onto you, and then to take your highest positive and apply that to them. That's what Christ did. He took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. This is the great exchange. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we hated him, at that time, he died for us. This is the love of Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. This is the love of Christ. It's humble. It's sacrificial. And it's initiatory. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We need to see a further description of God-like love, Christ-like love. The love of Christ is is the love of perfection, and I think 1 Corinthians 13 holds a definition of love for us that we need not depart from. Christ-like love is a love that initiates, it goes first, it's enduring through any pain and any trial. It's a love of revelation, both spoken and physically demonstrated. It reveals itself. It's, It's filled with compassion. It's seeking only the best for another at the fullest expense of self, treasuring service and sacrifice for the benefit and gain of others, demanding nothing and expecting nothing in return. If you think about worldly love, it does just the opposite. 
It's highly conditional love, and it has expectations for a return on investment. But Christ-like love doesn't look for that return. Listen to how Paul describes it in this text in 1 Corinthians. He says this in 1 Corinthians, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is how Christ loves. In fact, we're going to let 1 Corinthians stand alone as our definition for love. The 1 Corinthians 13 love is the definition of love. When you think of love, you need to think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love in this passage is not what you get from someone else. Love is qualified as something that you give to someone else. It's entirely the opposite, the polar opposite of the world's system, the world's understanding, man's understanding in his sin-sick wickedness. Man would like to believe that love is just something that just comes to him, but love is just the opposite. Love is something that goes at somebody else unconditionally. Husbands, that's what Paul is calling us to, that kind of love. You can tell me your wife acts like your neighbor. That's okay. Love your neighbor. You can tell me that your wife acts like your enemy. That's okay. Love your enemies. Christ has you covered either way. Bless those who curse you. This love is the best and the greatest. The love of Christ. The love of God that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. It is the love of God. And the only way that we could ever know this love is if Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, pours his love down from heaven into your heart. And with it being sent into your heart, you actually have somebody there who can catch it and receive the fullness of the love of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And now with the Holy Spirit catching the love of Christ from heaven inside of your heart, now filled with joy, filled with peace that comes from Christ on high, you have the ability inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit to take that love which wells up inside and project it out at somebody. That's love. That's the love of Christ that your marriage needs. It needs love that goes out of you at somebody else. That's the love of Christ. Ultimately, making them the target of the love of Christ, which comes from heaven and gets to them, your spouse. It gets to your spouse through you. Ladies, which do you want? Man-made, sin-sick, self-seeking, human-manufactured love? Nothing of quality there, right? Just brokenness and emptiness. You'd much rather have the spirit-powered love of Jesus Christ flowing down from heaven into your husband out at you. 
right? That's, that's the circuitry that you want connected when you feel love, right? Is that kind of love. Because there's a difference. Have you felt in your marriage, have you felt the difference? Do you know the difference? Because it is incredibly powerful, the difference between human manufactured love and Christ-flowing, Holy Spirit-powered love. Completely different love. One is actually quality, and the other one is self-seeking, conditional, and garbage. I believe you can feel the difference because the love of Christ is principled love. It's principled love. It is a love that has a foundation, a source, and the source is the very nature of God himself. So let's look at nine principal traits of Christ-like love. Nine principal traits of Christ-like love. I've got these paired with a scripture. I'm going to read a scripture, and I'm going to give you the principle, the principal trait. Okay? So the first verse is 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19, which says, We love because he first loved us. Genuine love. Christ-like love is love that initiates. It's love that initiates. Second, Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. To give oneself up is to be sacrificial. The love of Christ is sacrificial. That's principle trait number two. Philippians 2, 3 to 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So the principal trait number three of a biblical husband and of Christ-like love is humility. Humility. John 15, 16 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. The fourth trait of Christ-like love is that it's volitional. And volitional is to say that it is an act of your own will, that your own affection and your own desire is what's propelling that love. Number five, Titus 3, verse 3 and following says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy not on the basis of the deeds which we have done. You see, we are his known enemies. And, the, and this proves that his love is contra-conditional. It's contra-conditional. We were approached by him when we were yet his enemies. We did nothing in righteousness. We only did unrighteousness. His love proves to be contra-conditional. So you've got love that initiates, that is sacrificial, that is humble, that is volitional, which is it's of your own will, and love that is contra-conditional. We're at number six, Romans 8.35. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, no one, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. The love of Christ is eternal. The love of Christ is eternal. Colossians 3.13. Number seven, Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Should you forgive. It's just like Luke 17 when Jesus tells that you must forgive the same person for the same sin how many times in a day? It's in, in, Luke, in Luke 17, it's seven times in one day. The same sin. You punch me in the face at 7 o'clock in the morning. 7.30, you apologize. I forgive you. 8 o'clock. You see how the pattern goes? <laughs> the same sin, seven times, same day. Christ's love is a forgiving love, a perfectly forgiving love. Contraconditional, eternal, forgiving. Eighth, Ephesians 5.26. We read this, we'll read it again. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The love of Christ is purifying and constructive. It's purifying and constructive. His love has a goal in mind, a goal that his church would be holy and blameless. Do we have that same goal to find in our wives, to to help to purify her, that she would be holy and blameless? Are we constructive that way? Are we helping to purify her in that way? And the ninth comes from 1 John 3.18. It says, little children, this is 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Finally, the love of Christ, from this passage, we see that it is practical. It is practical. It is a love that meets needs and goes far beyond just physical needs, but primarily meets spiritual needs. The need for someone to have truth put into them. Man, this is the standard, the love of Christ. No crying. (laughs) Don't duck your heads. You're Holy Spirit-filled men if you want to listen to this and understand this and apply it to your life. This is what the love of Christ looked like in principle. Let's not just leave it in the principle. Let's take it to the practical. Let's take it to application. What does the practice of Christ-like love look like? Let's just walk back through a few of those nine principles and think about their practice. And this might expose some of our hearts. Okay, so let's just go back through some of these, some of these um, principles, principal traits of love. First, love that's initiatory. Okay? If we're looking at love that's initiatory and we're thinking about practice, think about what Charles Jones Charles Colcock Jones did for Mary. Who initiated the wedding? He did, right? He initiated it. Who, who made the proposal? He did. He went forward. He led. He initiated. So have you been uh, angry with your wife recently, today? Your last bout of anger toward your spouse over a conflict? Did it last two minutes? Two hours, 
Two days? Two weeks? Two years? 20 years? Heaven forbid. Two hours is a failure. Two minutes is a failure. It's a failure to love like Christ loved. The love of Christ will go. It will find confidence through humility to go and to do this, to reconcile, to restore the relationship, to speak words of reconciliation, gracious words, those that find grace for those who hear. The husband will be the one who initiates the contact. The two-day delay, the two-week delay, the two-year delay, that's your fault. That's not her fault. You take ownership of that. And if it was two years, then this year you make sure it doesn't go past two months. But by the end of the year, I'm going to be making sure that it doesn't go past two weeks. And hopefully next year it doesn't go past two days. And hopefully by the time that you're 95 years old, it doesn't go past two minutes. That's what the love of Christ should look like. It should initiate. Is your love initiatory? Does your love prove to be the one that moves first? Does your love move in response? The biblical husband will prove his love through initiation. We've considered the marriage proposal. It's really awkward if a woman proposes to a man. Don't tell us if that's you. Don't raise any hands. It's a little awkward if the woman proposes. It's a little backwards. Wayne Mack says this about initiation. Wayne Mack says, When there is not enough love in the marriage, one place for a husband to look is in the mirror. We must be the initiator. So if we're going to look at another one of these principal traits, another one would be, number two, sacrificial love. Love that is sacrificial. Now, anyone here would be willing to take a bullet for his wife. I, 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 have, I have a feeling that if I asked... I'd have 100% uh, every, every man in here. I, yeah, that's me. I'll take a bullet for my wife. And this is sacrifice. That's laying your life down for another. That's great. And, uh, but, but there's also the idea that that's a heroic sacrifice. There might be a little pride to be gained in that. And that also puts you into the eternal state before her, which you might like because of the last argument that you had. So it comes with benefits to you to lay your life down by taking a bullet But what about this kind of sacrifice? What about this kind? What about patiently listening through a full conversation and letting her get all of her thoughts out? What about patiently listening? What about that kind of sacrifice? What about going antique shopping or clothes shopping or stopping at those yard sales that she loves so much? What about taking the kids for a couple of days or even just a couple of hours so that she can have a break? What about this one? What about sacrificing being right for being kind. Did you get that one? What about sacrificing being right for being kind? You know, I kind of see that on the cross. Was it right that the perfect Son of God was on the cross? He sacrificed being right, being the only one allowed to live on the earth in right relationship with God. He sacrificed that for something that was kind. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, eternal salvation for us. Sure, you are willing to step up to take a bullet, but are you willing to back down in an argument to pursue peace and to be gentle? Are you able to sacrifice your pride and your way? This is sacrificial love. Number three, humble love. You'll never truly love her unless it's when you're practicing humility. In fact, she should never desire that you love her outside of 
being humble, of starting in humility, because she should only ever want Christ-like love from you. Because Christ-like love has its foundation in humility. In fact, you need to cut that word open and, and find love in the center of it. Humility, you could call it. It's funny. Number four, volitional love. This is love that truly wants the object of its affection. Volitional love. The love that starts in the will, in the the heart, in the epicenter of desire and affection. Volitional love. Are you intent and resolved on the idea that God created you to radiate his love through you at your wife? Are you resolved to that? Are you resolved to the idea that Christ wants to pour out his love from heaven into your heart so that you can give his love to her? Does that bring joy to you to know that Christ's love will come out of heaven into your heart and go at your wife to help your love go at your wife because that love is Christ's love and that's what you want to give to her? Is that what your heart's desire is? Your love needs to be volitional. It needs to give that kind of love. That needs to be its chief aim and desire, the desire of your heart. This is volitional love. It's a deep desire, the fullest affection, even the pleasure of your will to be able to give love to your wife. So then number five is love that's contra-conditional. This is love that says, I don't need you to do anything in order to start my love or keep my love racing after you. I don't need you to do anything. My love is coming at you regardless of what you offer back to me because my love is coming from Christ and I'm so satisfied with him I have the ability to continue to come at you with love even when you're not so lovely. I'm not worried about your response to my love. I know that I'm giving the right thing. Love from Christ, from heaven. It begs the question, where do you see this kind of example? You see it from Christ. But it also begs another question, is your love conditional? Do you withhold love for any number of reasons? Is your love only available under certain circumstances? If that is the case, you have circumstantial love, not contra-conditional love. You have circumstantial love. And that, again, is just garbage man-made love. You should desire to show contra-conditional love. The absence, the total absence, completely opposed to any condition. There's no condition that she has to meet in order for you to apply love to her. Number six, forgiving love. You know, we're dealing with human beings here. And what are the chances in dealing with human beings that we won't see eye to eye? Even right here, right now, tonight. Probably 100%. At some point in time, we're not going to see eye to eye. So there's going to be conflict. Forgiving love is ready to push past the human sin nature problem, the human brokenness problem. That's what forgiving love will do. It'll push right past those things because forgiving love perfectly understands the infinite value of God's love and the forgiveness that he has shown us in saving us from our sins. If you truly get the cross, if you truly get Christ and the sacrifice that he made for you, if you truly get that, offering forgiveness to somebody else is a piece of cake. It doesn't matter what they've done to you. To be able to offer forgiveness comes in a second because you know what's been done to you. So please, find or get 
forgiving love. Next is the practice of love, practical love. Because of your known sin nature, yours and my talk is cheap. They need more than us speaking love at them. They need practice. There must be action. You must use your mouth to communicate with your wife, and and you have to, because that's the simplest form of love, is just simple communication. You must tell her of her value, but then you must go beyond that and show her her value and the use of your hands and your feet, maybe to rub her head or to rub her feet or even to do these things, even to to get the groceries out of the back of the car when she comes home after shopping at 10 o'clock at night or clean up the mess after dinner without even saying a word to her or the kids, just doing it because it's what needs to happen next. Or putting your clothes away in the dirty laundry. Or putting your shoes in the closet. For heaven's sake, if you know that leaving the clothes on the floor is a point of frustration for her, then practice love and put your clothes away. Just something so simple, right? The practical application of love. Amen? Okay. Take care of those socks tonight, Brother Rod. (laughs) This is the husband as the lover. And we've talked about love, 1 Corinthians 13, the principles and practice of love. We've talked about these at extent. We need to move on to point number two, the quality of the biblical husband. The number two quality of a biblical husband is that he's a learner of his wife. He must be a learner of his wife. So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm just going to acknowledge that I've been talking for 37 minutes and we're on point two. Was that necessary? If I'm going to set the context for talking about you as being a learner of your wife, how important was it for us to understand what love looks like in principle and practice? And that we read 1 Corinthians 13. Pretty important, right? Okay, so now we're going to talk about learner and then we'll talk about one other quality of the husband, number three. But look at, look at this with me. The husband as the, as the learner of your wife. You, you've got to get love right first. And if you do that, then we'll start into the husband as the learner of his wife. And where the secular society mocks and jokes that men are from Mars and women are from Venus and that men are dogs and women are cats, and we can understand some of this terminology and we can understand where they're going with these things, but do we need to agree? The Bible suggests that women are made in the image and likeness of God, that their primary needs are much like the needs of the husband to have a right relationship with Christ. And and yet they are different from us, and their differences, they are good, and they are knowable. Read with me from 1 Peter 3, verse 7. It says this, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The command here is to live with your wives in an understanding way. Not only is this possible, but it must happen. But it takes two resources from you. Resources that you protect. Resources that you covet. That you don't give up very easily. Learning your wife and understanding her will take two resources. Anybody want to take a stab at what those are? Time? Effort. It'll take your time, and it'll take your effort. You have the time, and you have the ability. 
We are not pondering the question, where will the time come from or where will the strength come from to get the effort and the time needed to learn her. You must choose in love to prioritize your wife, to make her your dominant affection, which requires you to dump other affections. So what are you going to dump? What are, are you willing to learn your wife and invest over her if it costs you something? Like business. If it costs you business. If it costs you a title at work. If it costs you prestige in your office. If it costs you income. Are you willing to sacrifice those things that maybe you've made an idol out of in an effort to learn her, to spend more time with her? Because in some marriages... The husband's more than willing to spend 12 to 15 hours at work five days a week so that he doesn't have to be with her. And he's gaining a title, and he's gaining income, and he's gaining a position, and there might even be other gals there that he has relationships with that he likes, that he starts to covet. But he probably needs to cut that down and make that something more like a 10-hour day or a 9-hour day, and then take those other hours and invest them into his wife. Because if you do that, If you run a a 15-hour-a-day week for five days a week for 20 years, what does that relationship with the spouse look like? What does it look like if you've invested all that other time into other people and into the almighty dollar? That relationship looks busted and broken and trashed. Another thing that you might need to give up is your fitness. Maybe you have the ability to run a five-minute mile, and maybe you like to run for 20 or 25 miles. That takes time. Are you willing to give it up? What about the opportunity to continue to bench press 300 pounds? Never experienced that personally. Or 200 pounds. (laughs) But in sacrificing that time to not do those things, to not have fitness in that capacity, or to that extent, I get the opportunity to love my wife. Or sports, tracking your favorite sports team, taking off to go to a game, making sure that you and your buddies have all the accommodations for an Oakland Raiders football weekend. But your wife is left at home. This is just a sampling of the areas in your life that you may have to give up, that you may have to reprioritize in order that you be a learner of your wife. Are you willing to make the sacrifice? Are you interested? Do you have a desire to learn about your wife? Brothers, the failure, if this, is, if this results in failure, it's catastrophic. Not only will she feel neglected, broken, weak, used, But the passage in 1 Peter 3, 7 says that your prayers will be hindered for failing in in your obligation to honor this horizontal relationship. This is a horizontal relationship. And God says, if you don't honor that horizontal relationship, your vertical one's busted too. That's hurtful. That's catastrophic. The biblical husband will look to be a diligent learner of his wife and he will dump his desires in order to make knowing his wife a central priority of his life. And finally, the third quality of a biblical husband is that you are a leader of your wife. So if you're a lover of your wife, now I can see that you can move into being a learner of your wife. And if you're a learner of your wife, now I can see and expect that you can be a leader of your wife as well. Quality number three, being a leader of your wife. There are multiple leadership styles that anyone can employ to be a leader of a home. But we're talking about Christianity and we're talking about the love of Christ and certainly you're not going to be a dictator. You're not going to be a dictator. This is, leading, uh, this is where leading is, is demonstrated by demanding submission. 
We're not going to do that. Nor are we going to expect service in household duties as her primary obligation in life. Nor is forcing your wife to accept your opinions or preferences going to be something that we shove down her throat and demand of her. These are pagan exercises of dominion and control over their subjects. This is what humanity wants to do at its most base level in our brokenness, in our sinful humanity. This is not leading like a biblical husband. A biblical husband will not be a tyrant, a despot, or a king. He also won't be, number two, he won't be a a hypercritical leader either. This is someone who leads by making every nitpicking decision. Where do you have enough time to consider the kid's clothing or the color of the paint in the kitchen or the arrangements of photos on the wall? Husbands are leaders of teams. And in leading teams, we need to be learners of our teammates, finding out what their giftings are and what their strong suits are, and then equip them and empower them to do that work of service on behalf of the team. This is what being an effective leader in a household is, to allow their strengths to shine. So we don't need to be digging into the details of life with our wives in an annoying or obnoxious or rude or overbearing way. You can't blame this on on your your critical spirit on having OCD. Further, leading in minute stuff and usually unjustified criticisms or generally being extremely opinionated is indicative to me, if you're going to do those things, of bad theology. It's bad theology that would be critical, that would be highly opinionated or dive into all the minutiae of life. It's bad theology because it usually requires the lowering of the view of God has for your marriage and the exalted view of self and self's opinion about all the little teeny areas of life. So you allow someone who's more gifted in that area to do that. You find out what the quality of your mate is and her abilities, and you let her shine in those without being overbearing. Biblical husbands will lead by empowering their wives and their strengths, asking for their wives' insight and listening to her opinions. And this does not mean that you choose leadership by, number three, this other failure, following your wife. We're not looking for men who follow their wives. Okay, this, this other type of leadership style is not being a leader at all. It's totally unbiblical. God is going to hold men accountable for their leadership in the home, not the wives. And if she is leading you, it's your fault. If she's leading you, it's your fault. Schedule a counseling appointment. Let's talk about it. Because the failure at this point, the, 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 the failures that would be amounting at this point, the point of the wife leading the family, I would envision that they are many. But the, the biggest change needs to be in the heart of the husband. You know, it's like this. If, if you were driving a bus, or if you were on a bus, and, and the driver stepped away from the wheel, are you going to step up to the wheel or not? You would, right? You would step up to the wheel of the bus and drive the bus, right? Okay, well, you were the driver that stepped out, okay? And your wife is the one who said, hey, someone's got to drive the bus, and she reached up and grabbed the wheel. Okay, now it's time to walk back up and tap the shoulder and say, I'll take over. You need to step back into leadership in your home. We must be servant leaders in our homes. If these are the leadership styles to avoid, let's consider what godly leadership looks like. What does godly leadership look like? Maybe first by illustration. If you're talking about a dictator or a nitpicker, someone that's highly critical, this kind of husband, this kind of husband is is the one that leads like a cowboy, which is to say that there's got to be lots of yelling and whipping and pushing from behind. 
as the activities that are involved most frequently for compliance in the home. But the biblical husband is called to be a shepherd, not a cowboy. Because of the way that God has created husbands and wives, husbands need to learn to lead from the front by speaking calmly with certainty that the sheep are close by and that they hear his voice. Godly leadership is humble servanthood, which fully understands providence and sovereignty. It's okay if that doesn't get done. God will use that for his purposes to glorify himself. I I could be angry at the laundry not being done right now. It's been five days. I could be, but it could be that my leadership is being challenged in a different way by this, and it doesn't require me yelling, and it doesn't require me getting hot-headed, and it doesn't require me blowing up. What it might require is for me to stay up late and do the laundry. It might require another conversation or having a conversation with her as I help to do the laundry. So biblical husbands, their character has eight orientations. These are the eight orientations of a biblical husband's character. That he is others-oriented. That he's consumed with the well-being of his flock, particularly his wife and his children. This is an orientation, orientation number one of the biblical husband. Number two, he's goal-oriented. He knows where he is leading his wife and his kids, that there's a destination, which is holiness through sanctification. Next, he is example-oriented. He's example-oriented in his display of the fruit of the Spirit as he walks with Christ, fully comprehending the faith, perfectly at peace with God and man. Number three, he's example-oriented. He's others, he's goal, he's example-oriented. Next, he's solution-oriented. He knows how sin abounds, and his aim is to drive toward restoration for him and for all of mankind, particularly those in his own household. So he's restoration-oriented, he's solution-oriented. Number five is that he has a coach orientation about him, certainly in spiritual realities, but also in practical life circumstances. He's a coach. He wants to help his team to have success. As such, he's also a motivator. He's motivation-oriented, pointing to service of God and others above all other things, that there's excellence to be found in these for the name of Christ and for God our Father. So he's motivated toward, or he's, he's oriented toward motivation. He's also managerial. He's a manager. He's got management as an orientation, diligently positioning resources, making wise use of all talents and not micromanaging his spouse. And finally, he's got an orientation of just being someone who's pleasant. Just being pleasant, a pleasant orientation, living in the fullest joy Fun to be around and even a delight to know. This is the biblical husband. You know, I've got to, I'll I'll wrap up by having you turn over. I want to just see some thoughts from Stuart Scott's book as we close our time. This is a great list. It's on the back side of your handout tonight. And you can see at the top on the left side of that column, proud thoughts to put off paired up against loving thoughts to put on. Let's just read that, those first couple ones there. A proud thought that a biblical husband needs to put off is a thought that goes through your and I's head, and it's one that says something like, why doesn't she think of me more? Another one that we often would say is, 
why isn't she doing whatever for me? You can put that thought off and you can replace that thought with this thought. How can I think of her now? Or what can I do for her? These are a wonderful list. This, this list, when I read this book, The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott, and I got to these, these practical lists, this list, these, this little, uh, so, these simple little boxes, they just stuck in my mind. And when I would have this prideful thought, this other one down here, half, just past halfway, I'm tired, and I'm not going to do whatever. I've thought that so many times. I've thought that so many times. And look, the box right there, it's equally available for me to say what's in the other box, which is, I'm tired. Lord, give me the strength to continue loving and giving and serving my wife. The opportunity is equally there. Look over at the other one. Fear, about halfway down the right-hand side column, you've got fearful thoughts to put off and loving thoughts to put on. That first fearful thought, if I do or say that, she will get mad. Well, the loving thought would be, if she gets mad, I will deal with it God's way. We might just need to say something at some point in time that might hurt her. But then go to the bottom. Fearful actions to put off. Doing something to keep her happy with me. Doing something to keep her happy with me is a fearful action. You're doing it to keep her happy with you, as opposed to a loving action, which is doing loving things to please God and show His kindness to her. There is quite a list there. Have fun with it. Enjoy it. Take it home and bury that list into your mind. This has been a conversation about biblical husbands and what it is to be a biblical husband. Will you please pray with me? Father, I do thank you for this time and for the opportunity to talk about your plan, your principles, your purposes. You have given us commands. How are we supposed to fulfill them? They seem so daunting and so beyond us. They could have us broken to our core right now as we realize all the failure that abounds. Lord, you've purchased failure. If we're yours, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a new day, a new opportunity If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, if we failed to be biblical husbands, we confess that to you. We repent of that. We ask for your forgiveness. Lord, strengthen each man here to pursue restoration with you and with his wife for the areas that affect his life and his walk. Lord, that our conscience would be clear and that we can march on to a new day and you can squeeze more glory out of our lives. Uh, You've done so tonight with the humbling by going through this conversation. And we pray that you would do it more for your glory. Amen.